All right, good morning once again. I hope that you have your Bible with you and out. If not, I would encourage you to get up, run, and grab one so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. You need to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. And as you turn there, I want to say how thankful I am for Dylan and Joe uh, for their handling of things while I was gone. It's good to have these guys on the team and to work together to lead this church, to watch over your souls, to teach God's Word, and to serve you. Dylan has quickly proven to be a good fit for the team. Exhibit A, or maybe Exhibit J at this point, uh, is before I left last week. Uh, I assigned him 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 15 through 25 to preach. And when we sat down together, uh, along with the summer ministry apprentices, which is a highlight of the week every time we do it, uh, Dylan quickly said, there's too much here for just one sermon. He said there are easily three sermons here, at least there are two sermons, and he expressed what was a clear desire to take it slow and to look carefully at the passage rather than just rushing through. That's my kind of guy, Uh, and and I very much appreciate that so much, and he did a great job with it. I got to hear most of it uh, while I was away last week. Honestly, though, when I made the assignment, I was a little bit bummed at the prospect of missing out on preaching 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Because of all the scenes in Elisha's life, this one gets my attention every time. And I am so thankful that I get to preach it to you uh, this week. And maybe that was ultimately Dylan's, Dylan's uh, angle at the whole thing. <laughs> uh, in fact, let me start out with a bit of application. Before we even get to the text, there's a bit of application here. Read the Bible. Like, read the Bible. It is interesting. It is exciting. There is some wild stuff that happens here. It is not boring. It is not dull. There is some crazy stuff that happens. People who say that the Bible is boring, people who say that the Bible is dull, I can tell you one thing about those people. They have never read it. They have just not engaged it. Uh, Are there parts that are a little bit uh, less action than others? Sure, there are. But man, it is an exciting book to read. And so right off the bat, I just want, I hope that this text today will encourage you to read your Bible, to read your Bible regularly and be engaging with what God has to say to us in his word. So today we're going to study 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Read it along with me. God's word says, Then he, that's Elisha, went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. That's crazy, right? It's wild. Let's pray together. Father, we want to hear from you today. We want to receive your word today with humility and with submission. Give us grace to guard our hearts against pride and selfishness that leads to godlessness and idolatry. Teach us today about your kindness and your severity that we would see both of them in greater detail than ever before and thereby grow not only in our understanding, but in our amazement at your greatness and glory. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be changed. But more than anything, we want to see you and worship you as you deserve to be worshiped. So open our eyes, 
and our ears and our hearts to all that you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so we're just going to walk through this, this text, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Look at the beginning of verse 23. It says, Then he went up from there to Bethel. Now there is a subtle transition here in the language. Some translations render it, From there he went up. New American Standard says, Then he went up. Elisha has had a pretty good reception so far since receiving the baton from Elijah, since being anointed and appointed and given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Things have gone pretty well. His ministry is off to a really good start, but the tone is going to change as we move into this text. He is going to start to encounter opposition. Arthur Pink makes a great point about this when he says, Thus the truth, which is here pointed to by the conjunction, that is, then or uh, therefore, pointed to by the conjunction is plain. When the servant has been used by his master, he must expect to encounter the opposition of the enemy. After a period of blessing and success, he must expect sore trials. Elisha has been favored both at the Jordan and at Jericho, but here at Bethel, he hears the hiss of the serpent and the roaring of the lion against him. This is a truth that we must hear over and over again. This is a truth that we must hear preached to us and that we must preach to ourselves consistently. When we serve the Lord with faithfulness, the path will not always be clear nor smooth. In fact, the expectation should be that there will be opposition. The Bible teaches this plainly in a hundred places. Let me share three of them with you. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Peter says to these persecuted brothers and sisters who are scattered all over the place, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, don't be surprised like it's some strange thing when the trouble comes to you. Jesus speaks plainly about this too. Just before he is handed over to be crucified, just before he is betrayed into the hands of those who would beat him and crucify him, he prepares his disciples for the trouble that will come to them as they continue on the ministry that he has been doing. He says to them in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's good stuff right there, right? He says, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. Like that's the promise. That's the guarantee. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And if we are in him, so will we. And then Paul says it like this to 2 Timothy in, in some of his last words to his protege. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Nail this down. When we serve the Lord with faithfulness, the path will not always be clear and smooth. The expectation should be opposition. And we need to be ready for that when it comes and not be surprised at it. This change of tone that's happening here in Elisha's ministry is also signaled by the indication of where he is traveling. He is headed to Bethel. 
Bethel has some serious history with God's people, right? It is one of the first places where the patriarchs met with God, where there was this real personal encounter with God. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 28. In fact, turn there. Turn there to Genesis chapter 28. We'll read several verses together. At kind of the, the first thing. It's not really the first thing. There's some things that happen with Abraham at Bethel, or at least in that area. But, but one of the one of the first plate things that happens at Bethel, in fact, where it gets its name, Bethel, is this, this episode with Jacob and a dream that he has while he's sleeping there. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, says, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you'll spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of earth be blessed. And we ultimately know that that promise is fulfilled in Christ, right? Read on, verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none, this is none other than the house of God, the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously, the name of the city was Luz. He called the place Bethel, even though it had formerly been known as Luz. Bethel means house of God. He names the place the house of God. Now, this place becomes significant throughout Israel's history when they first come back into the promised land after conquering Jericho under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites after Jericho conquer Ai and Bethel. It's it's like on on the cutting edge of the conquering of the promised land. Then Bethel was one of the first places in the Holy Land where the Ark of the Covenant was set up where the priests offered sacrifices and, and, and asked questions of God, where they, where they really met with God and asked questions with him. You can read about that in Judges chapter 20 and chapter 21. Bethel at the, at, in those days was a place of, of great prominence, of great worship, of real meeting with God. But things turned sour when the kingdom was split and the northern kingdom of Israel's first king, whose name was Jeroboam, set up golden calves in Bethel and Dan. He had the people worship there according to what he devised in his own heart, the text says, instead of going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple where the ark was and worshiping God as he had instructed them to. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12 and I'll show you this because this is significant. This is significant about why Elisha is going to Bethel and why he encounters the opposition he encounters there. Bethel in Elisha's day was not a place of godly worship. It was not a place where the people of God met with God. It was no longer the house of God. 1 Kings chapter 12, starting verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem 
in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out, went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up after, go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return, return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. That never goes well with God's people, right? We'll make some golden calves. He made two golden calves and said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on the high places and made priests from among the people who were not from the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast on the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. He stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel, on the 15th day in the 8th month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Point of this is, is this. By the time Elisha comes along, Bethel, which is the house of God, is the center of Israelite idolatry and of pagan worship. It is the central hub of the apostasy of God's people. In fact, the ESV study Bible says it like that. The ESV study Bible says the focal point for Israel's apostasy was Bethel. The expositional commentary by the ESV says Bethel was the notorious center of false worship in Israel. Arthur Pink says originally Bethel was called the house of God, but now it become the habitation of the devil, one of the principal seats of Israel's idolatry. Its inhabitants were no ordinary people, but high rebels against the Lord, openly defying him to his face and guilty of the most fearful abominations. You need to understand the context of Bethel so that you can understand what happens when Elisha gets there. Bethel should have been home court for the prophet of God, but it is enemy territory, and that's where he's headed. Read what it says next. It says he went, uh, he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. There are three things I want us to consider in this part of the text. Bald head, young lads, and go up. Bald head, young lads, and go up. We'll talk about bald head first. When Jared paints his picture of Elisha to hang next to his portrait of Elijah, he needs to be bald. He needs to have no hair on his head. Now, there's a lot going on in this scene, but there seems to be no other explanation of this dig that these young lads make <clears throat> to Elisha other than the fact that he was bald. Like, there, there doesn't seem to be some high spiritual significance to this other than they just look at him and say, you don't have any hair. And this happens to bald guys. I can testify to this. You remember a couple years ago, we were out to dinner and, and this guy comes up, this perfect stranger comes up to me and like rubs on my head and makes... I had never met this guy before in my life and says something to Laura about my bald head. I was absolutely shocked and called for the she-bears to come from the, from the hills. 
didn't, didn't work. That guy's lucky. That's, that guy's lucky. So bald head. Elijah was bald. Elisha was bald. I, I think that's, that's one thing that we can get from this. But it gets more significant when we get to these young lads. When we talk about the young lads, there's some debate about who these guys are. Are they teenagers? Are they young men? Are they little kids? I think they're fairly little kids. When we dig into the text and see the different ways that these guys are referred to, I think they're fairly little kids, maybe like middle school age type kids. And there's a whole bunch of them. There's at least 42 of them, arguably significantly more than that, because when it talks about the ones that got mauled, it says 42 of their number. So it's not like there are three or four little kids coming up to him saying this. There's a whole posse of these little kids coming up to him. There's a mob of them. So get this scene. This is important. A whole mob of little kids come out from the city that is the epicenter of idolatry, They have grown up in this apostasy and they encounter the Lord's prophet who has a double portion of the spirit of Elijah resting on him. And rather than respect this man, rather than listen to him, rather than even be indifferent toward him, what do they do? The text says they mock him. Rather than respect him, rather than listen to to him, they mock him. And I want to say this to parents. Be warned. These kids picked this up from someone. These kids learned this kind of disrespect from their parents. Your kids will learn from you. Your kids will pick it up from you. Do you remember that old like public service announcement? This was when I was a kid. It was about drug use, like don't, don't do drugs. And this, this dad finds his kid with a, with a cigar box full of drug paraphernalia. And he, like, and, uh, he confronts him with it. And he says, where did you learn this? Where did you learn to do something like this? And the kid says, you, all right? I learned it by watching you. I'll never forget that as long as I live. That phrase, you, I learned it by watching you. Our kids will learn from us. And our kids will likely take what they learn from us to a whole new level. And that's what's going on in Bethel. They had grown up watching their parents engaged in idolatry. They had grown up watching their parents engaged in pagan worship. They had grown up watching their parents engaged in this disrespect of God. And then when God's man comes along, they take the mockery of him to a whole new level. This is a big deal, what's going on here as these young lads mock the prophet of God. And notice what they say. They say, go up. Sometimes we read that and we we read it as like, get out of here. And, And we place the emphasis on their dig at his bald head. But this is really the dig. When they say, go up, this is really the offensive thing that they say to him because they had evidently heard of the exit of Elijah, how he was taken up to heaven. And they are taunting him not only to do the same thing, but to go away in a most profound way. It's, it's not just get out of here. The tone, the tone of this uh, is, is like prove, prove that you're, you're uh, the, the successor of your mentor and go up out of here just like he went out of here. It is, it is offensive on a level that's hard to explain um, just, just from the text. Arthur Pink describes it like this. He says, What occurred here was far more than the silly prank of innocent children. It was the manifestation of the inveterate hatred of the true God and of his faithful servant. Like these kids 
are the, the, the in indication of just how far things have gone in Israel. And it's a big deal. God's word warns against this kind of mistreatment of his representatives. Look at Psalm 105, verse 15. God says, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. He says, Don't mess with them like this. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus speaks similarly when he says, The one who listens to you listens to me, speaking this to his disciples. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In other words, this kind of mockery, this kind of rejection of the prophet of God is a rejection of God himself. It is not personal to the prophet. It's not personal to the messenger. It is an indication that these people, by and large, even through their children, have rejected the God that Elisha represents. And so when they say to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, and they mock him, they are mocking the one true and living God, and this will not stand. God will not stand for this. Look what, look what happens in verse 24 as the story develops. When he, that's Elisha, looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now make no mistake about it, these kids are already cursed. They were already cursed because of their disobedience to God and because of their breaking of the covenant. They were already cursed because they lived, among, lived amongst a people who rejected God. Elisha simply pronounced what was already clearly established. What they had already accomplished for themselves, Elisha simply announced. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Like this is, this is the way it's going. This is what's playing out in Elisha's life. Over and over and over again, God sent prophets to his people. And instead of embracing them and accepting what they have to say and responding to them in repentance unto the Lord, they rejected, scoffed, mocked those prophets until the Lord had had enough and sent judgment upon them. Leviticus chapter 26 speaks similarly. Chapter 26, verse 21 says, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. God says this kind of rejection, this kind of scoffing, this kind of mockery will not stand. God will do something about it. David Platt says it like this. God will have the last word. Whatever the case, covenant infidelity has brought on a curse. This curse on the boys was a warning to the whole nation. If they persist in mockery, disdain, disobedience, and apostasy, then there will be dreadful consequences. This episode was a vivid sign to the people. Soon a great bear would come maul them and take them to exile. Catch what Platt is saying there? He's saying that this story about these 40-some-odd young lads who are mauled is just a microcosm of a bigger picture that's going on. If the people of God continue to reject God and His Word, then great judgment will come upon them. This kind of rejection of God will not be overlooked. 
And so we need to read this text as a warning even to us today. Look what happens. Elijah cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then the text says two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. This is clear evidence that the curse that was evoked by Elisha was not mere personal anger. And it certainly was not sin. Elisha is not just offended that these guys have made fun of his bald head. He's not just lashing out in anger and calling the bears down from the woods like I wanted to do to that guy in the restaurant that day. He's not doing anything like that. It was from the Lord. For it was the Lord who sent these bears to do his bidding and bring judgment upon these kids. God did this. Elisha just just cursed them, but it was the Lord who sent the bears out of the woods to maul them. Now, this is interesting because we, we see in the ministry of Elisha a lot of parallels with the ministry of Elijah. And there's a little bit of a parallel here with the scene at Mount Carmel. Like one, one of my friends said that he believes that this is the parallel. This is Elijah's Mount Carmel, where there is this confrontation and the man of God clearly wins. Well, at Mount Carmel, when Elijah had this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and he clearly won because fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, it was Elijah himself who slew the prophets of Baal. You remember this? He takes them to the brook Kidron, gathers them all up, and he slays them himself with his own hands. But here, it is not Elisha who does anything with his own hands. It is the Lord directly through these bears who comes down and slays these opponents of his. It's different, but it's similar. But all of this is hard to hear, right? I mean, I mean, is, is this a little bit of overreaction? That, that these kids say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, and bears come and kill 42 of them? It seems like a little bit of overreaction, but we need to be really careful with that attitude. We need to be really careful with that attitude and we must recognize that we all deserve immediate and eternal condemnation for our sins. We must recognize that it is only by the mercy of God that we are not all wiped out at this very moment because of our sin against him. It is is not crazy that God would send bears to maul these kids who are mocking him and his prophet. That makes perfect sense because he is a holy God and these are sinful people. But we must not just look off at them and say, yeah, you're right, Chris, these boys kind of deserve that. We must look at ourselves and recognize that we deserve that and so much more because we have sinned against God. And it is only his mercy It is only because of His mercy that we are not wiped out at any moment. We need also to remember that we are dealing with a rebellious people. And God is warning these people through this action with these boys to teach them and to bring about their repentance. He is teaching them that idolatry has consequences. That sin has consequences. Think back to the story in the New Testament of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember this? In the early days of the church, they... Everybody was selling their stuff and bringing the proceeds to the church so that no one had any kind of need. And this couple, they sold a piece of land. And instead of bringing the full uh, price of the land to, to the church, they bring a portion of it. And man, there is like swift judgment, right? One of them drops dead right then. And when the other one comes in, they're like, hey, did you, do you hear the footsteps coming? Those are the guys who just buried your husband and you die too. 
Like that's the, that's the way it goes. It is this swift judgment in order to bring about fear of God and repentance and careful walking. It's, it's, it's intended to bring about repentance. This kind of display of judgment is intended to bring about repentance for the rest of the people. And that's what I believe God intends with these boys as well, with these lads. He intends to bring about repentance for the rest of the people that they would see this. We read in Sunday school a few weeks ago in Romans, Behold, the kindness and severity of God. And I think we see the kindness and severity of God in this text. We see a whole lot of the severity of God in this text at least, right? And we need to hear about the severity of God so that we appreciate His kindness all the more. Behold, the kindness and severity of God. That's really the gospel, isn't it? The kindness and severity of God, that God is holy and that man is sinful and that God must punish sin and will punish sin, like severely. We're talking about eternal condemnation. We're talking about the full measure of the wrath of God. He will punish sin. Behold the severity of God. But behold the kindness of God, that He loves us and made a way for us sinful men to be reconciled to His holy self that we could be reconciled to Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who took our sin upon Himself and suffered the wrath that we deserve and rose again victorious over sin and death and hell and offers us victory by grace through faith in Him. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Severity in the punishment of sin, that's real. And kindness in the salvation that is offered through Christ. And that is gloriously real as well. Arthur Pink says, What must have been the grief of those parents when they beheld the mangled bodies of their little ones? But how much greater the anguish of parents in the day of judgment when they witness the everlasting condemnation of their offspring if it has been occasioned by their own negligence and evil example? Paul, that rocked my world when I read that this week. What, what a pain that must have been to those parents to see the mangled bodies of their children, which they know is a result of their rebellion that they taught to them by their own example. But how much worse for a parent who would teach his child to rebel against God eternally and experience eternal condemnation. Parents, we need to be careful. It's one of the big applications of this text, I think, is that we parents need to be careful what we are teaching our children about the Lord and how we are teaching them to follow Him. Verse 25 says, He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there He returned to Samaria. And we could talk a lot about these places. Bottom line is this. Elisha is continuing to travel. He's continuing to, uh, to confront idolatry that is rampant amongst God's people. These places, Mount Carmel and Samaria, is where he will continue to do the ministry that God has appointed for him. So there are four applications that I want to make from this text today that I want you to take home with you. First is be ready. Be ready for opposition when you faithfully serve the Lord. Be ready for opposition when you faithfully serve the Lord and keep serving him through the opposition. It will come. Do not be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery ordeal that is among you, as if some 
unordinary thing were happening. Don't be surprised. Be ready for it and keep serving him. Maybe, maybe the better way to teach this point is to ask you this. You want the easy road? Do you want the easy road? You want the easy road without opposition, without trouble, without pain? Don't serve the Lord. Serve the world. Serve yourself. Be completely selfish. You can probably find an easy road. In fact, Jesus says there is a wide road. There is an easy road. It's got a big gate, and it leads straight to destruction, and there are many who find it. But there is a narrow gate and a narrow road that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And I believe that narrow road is a mountain path that is not easy to traverse. But it is worth it because it leads to life. Know that when you faithfully serve the Lord, there, there will be opposition. Why, why would the enemy oppose someone who is not doing any work for the Lord? When you serve the Lord faithfully, there will be opposition. But take heart, the Lord Jesus has overcome the world. And take heart, there is a reward that lies on the other side. So continue to serve him faithfully, even through the opposition. And know, in some ways, that the opposition is endorsement of your faithfulness. Because Jesus teaches that when you follow him, the world will hate you. Because it hated him. Number one, be ready. Be ready for the opposition when you faithfully serve the Lord. Number two, be careful. Be careful what you teach your kids. Be careful what you teach your kids by instruction and by example. I think this whole quarantine situation has been interesting and will be interesting for families. Because what we have seen is a sudden uh, displacement of all kinds of distractions that are normally in our lives. Like we are, we are suddenly not very busy. Suddenly, we have evenings at home and can gather around the supper table. Suddenly, we have weekends in town without baseball, soccer, whatever tournaments that would take us to the ends of the earth uh, for, for sport or recreation. Suddenly, we, we, are, we are stuck together. And, and I think good things have come out of that, generally. I know some bad things have come out of that as well, but I think some good things, the restoration of the family table... Uh, the restoration of the, the family, in a lot of ways, ha has been really good with this. But I'm really concerned what's going to happen when it all loosens back up. Like, I really worry that parents are going to double down on the distractions when the distractions are once again available. And that their kids are going to learn the very worst lessons possible if that happens. That, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll be together as long as there's not something else going on. Oh, we'll tune into church as long as there's not something else going on. Oh, we'll do these things that God tells us to do as long as there's not something else going on. But as soon as there's something else going on, we're going for it. Like parents, we got to be really careful. As the world goes back to normal, we've got to be really careful to teach our kids what is important. And, and know, and know that they will, they will learn those lessons and they will likely escalate them in, in their own lives and with their children. Like, it is not, it's not a flat, uh, what's the word we use, trajectory? It's not, it's not a flat trajectory. It will escalate. That's the way it works with generations. So parents, be careful what you teach your kids by your instruction, but even more so by your example. Be really careful. These kids that mocked Elijah, Elisha, they learned it from their parents. They learned it from their parents, and they took it to a whole new level. So be careful. Number three, be submissive. Be submissive to the Lord and to his word. When the prophet comes to town, listen to him. 
<laughs> when, when, the, when the word of God is shared, listen with a posture of humility and submission. You take it in and you let it rule over you. You need to be really careful that your posture when you read God's word or when you hear it taught faithfully is not, well, that can't be true, or I don't like that, or I embrace this and reject that, or I will sit in judgment over God's word. No, 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 no. You never find yourself over God's word. We always find ourselves under God's word. So when the prophet comes to town, when the word of God is preached, we gladly place ourselves in a posture of humble submission to it because we will only get ourselves in trouble otherwise. If, if we try to put ourselves above God's word, acting as the judge over it, we will only get ourselves in trouble. Think about it in your own life when you've done this. Let not, regardless of biblical uh, examples, regardless of historical examples, think about personal examples of this. When you've tried to do that, when you've tried to say, oh, I know what the Bible says, but I know better, you've only gotten yourself in trouble. So sit under the word of God. Be submissive to the Lord and to his word. And then fourth and finally, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This picture of the she-bears coming down from the woods and mauling these kids is a picture of the wrath of God against sin. And what you and I need to acknowledge is that we deserve that and infinitely more because we have sinned against a holy God. We deserve eternal condemnation. But He loves us and demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, before we fixed anything, before we cleaned ourselves up, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stepped in as the substitute, took our sin, took our punishment, and offers us his life, offers us his righteousness as a gift, not as a paycheck that we earn, but as a gift that we receive simply by trusting, by depending on the Lord Jesus Christ, on who he is and what he has done for us. Be reconciled to God today. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's your only hope. That's your only hope in eternity is to trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we, as we take all of this in, as we put action to the lessons you've taught us in your word today, help us, make us ready opposition that will come when we serve you. Help us keep serving through the opposition. Help us to be careful what we're teaching our kids by our instruction and by our example. Help us to be submissive to your word when we read it and hear it. And Father, I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are listening, who are lost, dead in their trespasses and sins. God, we pray, I pray that you will reconcile them to yourself today through faith in Jesus Christ, that you would open their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness and that you would awaken them to the glories of the cross, that Christ died in their place and that life is found in him and him alone. Father, give them faith to trust in Jesus. Give them repentance to turn away from their sins and give them life that is everlasting. All for your glory, we pray these things. Amen.
The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working. 